0: Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The future of finance doesn't always lie in how FinTechs finance markets. Part of the revolution lies in how markets finance fintech, especially new and emerging fintech companies that need capital in order to turn ideas into viable products and services. The times are long gone where startups funded by mainstay investment houses with 100-year histories are the primary backers of new and emerging companies. Instead, most of the action is done by smaller venture capital firms scattered across the country. I thought it'd be fun for our listeners to get a sneak peek into the future of fintech investing. So, in today's program, we're turning to two rising stars in the fintech industry and in investing more generally. Amayas Garrity, a partner with QED Investors, and Yvonne Wang, an engineer, financier, and founder of Stealth Startup. Now, these two have very interesting histories, with Amayas having worked in the Treasury Department, uh, where his work focused on financial stability, and Yvonne having worked on Wall Street and as a fintech guru in California.
1: I, I it. I, I it.
0: Yeah. Yvonne and Amayas, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: We're glad to be here.
0: Excited to be here. So I guess I am gonna start off with a kind of a basic question, that I think you two would really have a good sense of, and I'll start with you, Amayas, and then, Yvonne, you can chip in, which is, what is the state of fintech investing currently in the United States?
2: Chris, I think there's a lot of excitement around fintech today, but we're really in what you might call second wave fintech. So 10 years ago, the rise of online lenders, Prosper, Lending Club, Avant, and others really started to understand the idea that you could make loans online and people could uh, often finance those lines in a a peer-to-peer manner. At this point, a lot of the largest fintechs uh, came out of uh, either online lending or this retail payment ecosystem. And as we move into the second wave of big companies having been created and now um, new companies trying to create themselves, there's a lot more focus on... um, smaller applications that really hone value for particular consumer sets, particular uh, small business uh, groups, and really try and create uh, bundles of value. So the big dynamic in fintech is really this balance between unbundling you know, pulling products away from the banks and then rebundling financial services around particular financial needs. So there's a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, action. Uh, but at the same time, I think we're really starting to define that second wave of what it means to be a fintech in the United States, and and that also means that there's more focus on capital markets, more focus on uh, operational technology and infrastructure investments as well.
1: Yeah, I actually was going to I say very much the same things. I think there is a large shift from retail to institutional. So if you want to put the earliest fintech, I would always say is more B2C. So you're thinking of payment processes, cards, online lending, all the way to private like wealth management services. And now it's really where a lot of the big money is, right? And that's B2B and that's institutional. So you're starting to see big structural um, changes that I think are just starting. And that's around issuance, securitization And these are much, much doll- larger dollar amounts. I think technology has proved itself very, very effective in the retail markets. And now they're shifting to say, well, how is it going to change the institutional and ho- wholesale markets? So with that, I think... Currently, that phase is very tech-focused, but I think what you're going to see as that technology evolves is many different types of institutional services. So, like Robinhood has shifted to doing a clearing platform. So, you're going to see services result from that type of technology. And then I think there's a lot of uh, segmentation. So, little niche technologies, especially to me around machine learning, um, alpha generation, AI. I think there was large sweeping uh, thoughts of saying how this could change, but now it's much more in terms of implementation. It's it's where the real value is. And there is a little bit of an AI winter, but I, I actually am very, very bullish on what's going to come out of it is a known application and real value.
0: And Yvonne, you had mentioned AI Winter. Now, a lot of our listeners may have been more familiar with Crypto Winter and this sort of fall in not only the valuation of lots of different cryptocurrencies in 2018, but also uh, really uh, uh, lower volumes and less interest in terms of uh, money flowing into crypto-related projects. But are different subsets of the fintech ecosystem experiencing varying levels of revival uh, just based on what's happening both on the retail level uh, and also, obviously, from the interest expressed by different VC backers and others?
1: Similar to Crypto Winter, I definitely see it in the AI space. I think there was a lot of early-stage investments in AI, hoping to apply AI in the retail world. And when I mean retail here, I mean retail outside of finance and applying those principles within finance. And then those have been, um, I would say, challenging at best. And the results of that were because I would believe finance requires an extremely high, accurate um and validation in terms of what that AI is telling you, right? It's a highly regulated industry and there's a lot of money based on those consequences of the AI. So it's very different than when you go and you ask Alexa to play a song or turn on your lights. If they do it incorrectly, those consequences are low. To make a trading decision, a large balance sheet decision, those consequences are high. Um, So you'll see a lot of application of general AI technologies don't work in fintech. That being said, now we see a lot of very specific investments in AI just for financial services, I think this is coupled with, you know, now many many VC firms having a specialization in fintech um, and finance, and understanding what it needs to apply these great technical solutions in a finance ecosystem.
2: I think that we we see, for example there was a time when the excitement around the word AI drove investment in companies that were able to promise that they could gobble the world. And what we're seeing now is um, what we think of as instead of tracking the frontier of what's possible in 2025, we want to find people that are tracking the frontier of what's easy today. And that tends to mean more verticalization, more specialized problems, and more connection between that model intuition, that model insight around what statistics you can use and the actual realities of the underlying data. Where is it messy? Where is it dirty? Where does it need to be connected? And people who can connect both of those things are really able to bring some value to bear. But if you're just saying, hey, my algorithm is better than your algorithm, I think you're seeing a lot of skepticism in the investment community. uh, And that is leading to what people call an AI winter or or a little bit of a slowdown in the enthusiasm that if you throw that word into your deck, you'll automatically get funded.
0: And, And Yvonne, are you seeing a similar change or increased sophistication uh, from the standpoint of funders when they're trying to evaluate different fintechs in which to invest when they're thinking through the question of what is a good deal?
1: I definitely see a difference in, I would say, fintech VC versus VC. Um, So I think a good deal in terms of market technology, I think, you know, can be like, I'm changing markets. Or I'm actually just changing the way operations run and coming up with an efficient cost structure. So I, I think it's, it, it's a broadening of that view versus uh, I'm just going to build a new peer-to-peer lender. And then I'm going to have lots of copycats of those, right? People are a lot more thoughtful. The investor space is a lot more knowledgeable. You'll see many of the investors come out of actual you know strategic firms looking to disrupt so it's, it's very much an in, in insider's view of how to change finance um, as opposed to you know greater than five years ago where it was outside saying hey we can actually disrupt this market. I think you definitely need both and to me this is a this is signifying uh, maturity in Fintech investing um, as compared to you know a decade ago.
0: One thing that is changing is the economy uh, at least it appears to be slowing. And for sure, interest rates are set to fall. What does this mean, Amias, for fintechs from from your standpoint? Uh, Does it mean, uh, you know, investment is just going to go gangbusters with uh, lower interest rates? I think the
2: reality is that downturns are where great companies are often born. It's certainly true for QED investors that Um, My partner started investing in 2008 and 2009, and that ended up being a really great time uh, to invest in what became known as fintech. I think what you will see immediately is that things will slow down because there will just be more uncertainty in the market. When things slow down, funding rounds get harder, valuations go a bit lower. So a lot of the dynamics that we see today is that speed really matters. Everything is an auction and that drives valuations up because if you're not in this deal, you're going to miss out. But I think what you'll see in the context of a slowdown is just everything is going to get a little bit harder. Everything is going to go a little bit longer. Now, the truth is that most VCs have capital uh, locked up with their LPs. And so they should be able to invest through a downturn. And most of them should know that investing in downturns does really allow you to to build great companies over time, but the sense of what might be a great deal is going to be harder to determine, and so people are going to be more nervous that, will this company survive the next six months, the next 18 months? For companies that are already funded, we certainly are encouraging them always to keep in your back pocket the plan to become cash flow break-even within six months if that becomes necessary. Because if you have that plan in your back pocket, you can control your own destiny. And in venture, we often talk about this idea, are you default alive or default dead? And while it's okay to burn cash into growth and have that default dead plan as long as you're going to continue hitting your benchmarks and you're going to continue raising money you always want to have in your back pocket the idea that you could become default alive and if that means slower growth so be it because as long as you have as my partner frank says a chip in a chair you're in the game and you can build a great company over time
0: and i would suppose that to the extent that they're not able to do that right and and where it's harder to make that switch you could see in an economic downturn potential m a activity, better resource companies, identifying uh, some of the weaker links or companies with really good people or tech. Um, is this something, Yvonne, that you've seen or, or heard or, or thought about?
1: Yeah. So I think there's going to be, in general, consolidation happening, right? Um, what we're hearing from, and this is less on the VC side, but definitely on the strategic investor side is there's just so many solutions out there. And strategic investors are very interesting in that they often are investors and then, you know, they often have our clients of those same businesses. So I do think they're going to push for consolidation. So how are all of these technologies going to work together? What does an ecosystem look like versus a single technology? And I do think that's going to change the way they invest um, where, you know, before it was like, here's my idea. I could actually grow very quickly. We can burn very, ca- you know, burn lots of cash and try to capture an entire market. Now, to very, very small segmentation, and they're going to look to think, okay, now you have this small segmentation. You have smaller solutions. How are these solutions going to add up to an ecosystem that ultimately helps me as like a strategic investor and as as a potential client? Um, I do think economic downturns will it, it will it will push down valuations, but I also I am a firm believer that downturns, especially in finance, are of the greatest. Um, inventions happen. That is when you look for creativity around how technology is going to solve your solutions. How are you going to process things differently? What are different financial solutions? I mean, I think it's a great time and I'm very different than many. It's a great time for blockchain um, and thinking about those, right? That is in a low interest rate environment and where cash is king and you want to keep down costs, it's going to push you know, many of these tech solutions and many of those thoughts to how are we really going to change things?
2: I think the point about platforms and the way these technologies are going to get reconsolidated, that is definitely happening. It happens all the time. We we see companies, you know, there's the version of this which is it's an aqua hire, you've got great uh, engineers or a great idea. Let's just fold them in. You can see things where this is a feature, right? Okay, we'll we'll add this feature to a larger platform. Uh-huh. But I think um, what we've seen is that, especially in enterprise, the B2B sale is so difficult that you really need a very sharp value proposition. And it will often be easier over time, especially during kind of a shakeout from a funding perspective um, for banks to wait for some consolidation. We often say that banks are in a race for third place when it comes to uh, buying technology, right? They always want to be the third or the fourth or the fifth um, (laughs) person to to adopt something. And what that means is many of them are calculating that they are going to wait for someone else to try this, to integrate it. And I do think, especially in B2B, especially in capital markets, this pressure on integration is as, if not more important than the question of how good is your mousetrap. And that will become only more important as we go through a downturn because that will necessarily lengthen sales cycles even beyond where they are. So we, we see that emphasis on, are you buyable? If I buy you, how long will it take me to get value in my bank or in my financial institution. And that's often the decision-making criteria, not who's got the best alpha in their model or in their uh, machine learning uh,
0: approach. Up to this point in time, we've been talking about venture capital. Uh, We've talked about uh, more institutionalization. We're hearing about trends of specialist, strategic investors. I think it's useful to maybe in this conversation talking a little bit about the little guy. What should normal people think about uh, when uh, they do have the opportunity to invest in different uh, fintech solutions and investments?
2: You have to start with, why do I have this opportunity to invest, right? If, If you're investing in Uber because you grew up with the Uber founders... Well, sure, maybe you have that opportunity and it's a great company, you can evaluate it. But I talk to angel investors all the time, people with very significant capital, lots of sophistication. And one of the lessons that they often say is, every time I look at a deal, I have to ask the question, why did this deal come to me? And I think when you play that out for retail investors, you have to think about that, you know, an order of magnitude more significantly. It is true in venture that, There can be great deals that many people don't see or many people don't understand and most people don't want to fund. But it is also true that there are a very large clash of professional investors that are chasing after deals that they expect to be the best deals. And the competition is there, is not over price, it's over whether you get to invest at all. So I think for retail investors, you really have to have a skeptical line. Look, the entire venture capital ecosystem generally doesn't make that much money. The reason is most venture capitalists are doing this not with the seriousness of intention or purpose. And so as an ecosystem, venture capital returns are not great, even though the top firms have fantastic returns.
0: And even then, as you said, I mean, it's really worth emphasizing because it's really fascinating is that even the the folks with the money, at least for the time being, they're the ones who are chasing the investment opportunities. It's not a question of the investment opportunities chasing the money.
2: At so, least for now.
0: At least for now. And and, and there's some jostling over there or, or between the VCs, uh, even leading VCs, as to who gets the opportunity to invest at a certain early stage.
2: Yeah, I had a leading VC tell me that he tries to turn around a term sheet from first meeting with an exciting company in 24 hours because it's so competitive. So if you're a retail investor and someone with a billion dollars and a staff of 40 or 50 people is saying he needs to do this in 24 hours... You just have to really have that caveat emptor mindset. And you see that a lot with crypto. Look, the the reality is even if these companies are not fraudulent, the vast, vast majority of them will fail. So unless you have a portfolio approach, unless you have a really strong view as to what creates value, chances are that any venture investment, any early stage investment you make will not turn into one that's going to IPO with multi-billion dollar outcomes.
0: And, and Yvonne, do you share that optimistic view?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that's a real cautionary tale. And I I, pull it,
1: I bring it to something uh, simpler, right? So um, to me, private is the new public. You know, if you're talking about, and I came from the pre.com, you know, California <laughs> timing. So, so, you know, there companies IPO, they became public much faster and the public got to participate much, much earlier than now. Companies are staying private for a lot longer. So, you know, those deals hitting the retail market is, it's just slower. Retail investors, um, have less opportunity to participate. So that being said, it's, um, to me when it comes down to like many vcs do this and if you're a retail investor you have to trust your gut and you have to say do i know these people ultimately that i'm investing in um, instead of you know trying to do fancy type of economics i think if you have the capacity you have the risk appetite as a retail investor you should say you know what do i like about it do i like the people do i believe in them and you know and then then it's something that you can always hand to heart go you know what I did this because I wanted to do it um, versus the chasing the yield approach.
0: So, so ultimately, you know, look at the company uh, to the extent that you can, get a good sense as to who that leadership is, and make sure that you understand the company. Uh, but sometimes that's apparently just as important or even more important than really sophisticated uh, modeling.
2: Yeah. Why is this team going to win? And why do I have the expertise necessary to adjudicate whether this is the team to back,
0: even if the idea is great? Well, thank you so very much. This was an interesting conversation, Amayas and Yvonne, uh, and I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you, Chris.
0: Investing is never easy. You have to look at an investment. You have to hires and consider the market in which it's operating and then make a reasonable, rational guess about its prospects. But sound investing is made even more difficult when you're investing in something that is both technologically complicated and all too often abstract. So there's an eager world of venture capitalists stepping into the breach and competing for investments. Now, whether or not this competition is something ultimately healthy for fintech and financial markets remains to be seen. And we'll be checking back in on the sector periodically. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up At Chris Brummer, D-R, that's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.